Once again, we offer our condolences to our living and awaited Savior, Imam Al-Hujjah, Sharif, may Allah hasten his return. And to all of us who are here this evening as we continue in this commemoration of the remembrance of one of the greatest human beings to ever walk upon this earth. The man who, as we know, is the brother of Rasulullah. He was made the brother of the Prophet in the, after the journey to Medina in the Pledge of the Ukhuwa. He was the son-in-law of Rasulullah. He was the cousin of our beloved Prophet. He was Asadullah al-Ghalib, Ali ibn Abi Talib, salawatullahi wa salamuhu Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. And indeed as the historians and researchers of the life of Mullah have mentioned that with the death of Amir al-Mu'mineen, justice in and of itself was killed. Meaning that he was such a man of balance, of justice, of fairness, of equality, that with the martyrdom of this great personality, justice really ceased to exist on this earth. And we see that in the world manifest today, where human rights abuses take place, where animal abuses take place, where there is no justice, no even semblance of justice for many countries and organizations and individuals who claim to be the people at the forefront of human rights. And as, as we know that the only time that that justice will be restored on earth, the only time where the Alawi definition of justice will be put on this earth and reinforced is with the return of our 12th Imam, Imam al-Hujjah, when he establishes a government of justice, of, of equality, of human rights. And when him with Prophet Jesus, peace be upon them both, when they unite forces to change the order of this world, we ask Allah to be amongst those who can help the 12th Imam, who can be alongside Imam al-Hujjah to bring about that government of justice and of human rights upon this earth. Tonight in our fourth and final session in this review of the multidimensional man that Imam Ali is, I want to complete the discussion by looking at the aspect of the humanitarian existence of Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam. As you'll recall, we began the discussion three nights ago. In our first lecture, we talked about the family life of Amir al-Mu'mineen and how he is the perfect um, man. He is a perfect human being in terms of a father, in terms of a husband, in terms of a family man in all of its dimensions. From there, in the second night, we looked at the spirituality of the commander of the faithful, how he was the man that connected to Allah better than anybody else. And that the evidence of that even today is the fact that every major Sufi tariqah on the face of this earth, Shia or not, most of them are not Shia, they all trace their spiritual lineage and heritage back to Amir al-Mu'mineen. Last night we looked at leadership, at governance, and we made the one point that I just want to, to mention, that we should never think of leadership, whether it is of our religious community, whether it is a political, whether it's at work, we should never look at politics as being a necessary evil. Rather, if we follow the politics of the son of Abu Talib, and we shun the politics of the son of Abu Sufyan, then we will be sure to be on the right path of leadership and guidance. And obviously that takes struggle for us to study the life of Amir al-Mu'mineen, to see where he had opportunities where he could have used politics in a negative light, but he would never have done that because as we mentioned that he is the embodiment of the Qur'an. And so if we study his life in the terms of the political sphere of those four years and around 10 months of that open khilafat, 
we will hopefully gauge what we as the Shias of Ali can do in terms of becoming politically active, aware and engaged. Again, whether it's our local community or at the political level of the country that we are in. Tonight, I want to look at a few aspects of the humanitarian life of Imam Ali. How did he relate to other human beings? And not even other human beings, but all of the creations of Allah. You know, today, as in the past many years, this has been a very important topic that many Western organizations have brought up about humanitarianism. How do you care for other people? You know, today you have groups like PEDA, people for the ethical treatment of animals. And they go to, I would say, sometimes extremes. They're extremists in one way. In their vision of implementation of justice to animals. Now, yes, animals have rights, and we'll see this towards the end of my talk tonight. But Amir al-Mu'mineen brings about balance in terms of even how you treat animals. And I want to look at a few different examples of how Mawla brought a, a, a process forth that showed us that he was the greatest humanitarian. And obviously, as I said in the past, whatever we learn from our, our Imam, he took this from Rasulullah. So Rasulullah was a part of the green movement before we had a green movement in the West. The Prophet encouraged things like planting trees. The Prophet encouraged us to take care of animals. The Prophet encouraged a lot of these things. And so Amir al-Mu'minin carried on his tradition and he has now delivered that to us, which we have to try and learn and implement within our lives. The one thing I want to begin with is the right of every human being. You know, if you look at the United Nations Charter of Human Rights, they'll tell you things like every human being has a right to, for example, food, clothing, and shelter. It's ingrained in the Constitution of the United Nations, right? a, a long document that outlines rights of, of many different human beings and creations of God and, and what our inalienable rights are. But you can actually rewind the history of time and ask where did the human rights actually begin with? Right? And you know, we could even go back and look at the other prophets of Allah because Allah sent 124,000 prophets so I'm sure they also taught similar teachings. But obviously a lot of those teachings are lost. They have been corrupted by the church and by their other religious organizations. And so we need to look into Islam, into the Qur'an first and foremost, and then the teachings of the Prophet and his noble family, to see that did they 14 centuries ago, in an era where there, were no, there was no concept of rights, where there was no concept of you know, taking care of other people, where it was all about yourself, that did the Prophet and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, did they ever speak about what others should get in life? You know, today in the West, especially, they have a concept called a basic living wage. At one level, we have what's been known traditionally as minimum wage, right? And so in Canada, or in Ontario, at least the minimum wage is, I think, $12 an hour. But nowadays, what they're talking about is a basic living wage. So yes, the minimum wage might be $10, $11, $12 an hour. But what the experts do is they look at that $12, and they say, okay, if you work 37.5 hours a week, you multiply that by your wage, you subtract all the, the, the taxes and the EI and CPP benefits, and they come up with an amount. 
And they say that based on the living standards of your locality, London, for example, they will tell you that in order for a, a human being living in London, Ontario in 2019, they need to be making X amount of money to be able to sustain themselves. And this is just the minimal, right? Rent, food, clothing, medication, uh, you know, other basic expenses. This doesn't take into account vacations. It's just always about a staycation. You just stay in town and take a week off. This doesn't take into account, you know, the big 65-inch television that you want. It doesn't take into account all the luxuries of life. And as I was reading the statistics for, for right now, for 2019 in London, Ontario, they said that in Ontario, the minimum wage is $14 an hour. But they said that the minimum living wage is $16 an hour. So $2 difference. And so they did the statistics. If a husband and wife are both working full-time at minimum wage with two children having to pay daycare and all the expenses of bringing up a child in today's society, that, that couple would basically be running short about $600 a month. So that means, A, that children don't get to go for swimming lessons or for any kind of outdoor, you know, any other extracurricular sporting activities. It means that the family can't go on a vacation, even let's say to Toronto, two hours away, because they can't afford the gas, they can't afford the hotel, they can't afford eating out. It means that they may have to forego many luxuries that you and I just take for granted that we have. We just go and we charge it, we, we buy this and we buy that. And so one of the challenges today in our society is how do we provide the most, um, we can say the less fortunate people of our society with a basic wage that will allow them to live. Imam Ali al-Islam had a concept of a basic living wage 1400 years ago. And you know, if you actually, just a coincidental uh, a fact is that right now that we're in 2019, 1440, the Islamic calendar, this is the 1400th anniversary of the Shahadat of Imam Ali. 1400 years, we are now commemorating his Shahadat. So it's a, it's a huge milestone this year. 14 centuries ago, he was killed in Masjid al-Kufa. But coming back to the talk, he actually had a process in place, what we would call a living wage. I'll just read the English translation of this event. And it mentions, it's not a hadith from Imam Ali, it's basically a historical narrative about the time in Kufa. But he, the, 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 the tradition states, the historical narrative states, there was not a single person in the entire city of Kufa, except that they all led the minimal, comfortable, carefree life. So even the poorest of the poor had their needs taken care of. It mentions in the minimum, the most modest of people had wheat, so they had food to eat, they had a roof over their heads, and they had clean, potable drinking water. So at the minimal, in Kufa at least, right, and we don't know about Medina and Sham and Egypt and Africa where Islam was spreading, obviously whatever Amir al-Mu'mineen could do, he would do. But in the minimal, at least where his governance was set, and maybe in the surrounding areas, Nobody was going without the three basic necessities, food, clothing, and shelter. Food was there, shelter was there, water was there. Right? Showing us that Imam had set in place a system of, of, of ensuring at the social level that everybody had the basic requirements of life. 
Now, they might not have had 15 camels and 10 sheep and a cow and a goat and all the other luxuries at that time. But they had the basic minimal needs. And you look at our societies today, you know, and the fact that there are people who live in homeless shelters, the fact that there are people living on the streets of our major cities, which, you know, our government has billions of dollars to throw into weapons. Our governments have billions of dollars to throw into, um, you know, just complete wastes of money, right? It's like last year, if, if I'm not mistaken, when Canada celebrated our um, the, the 150th anniversary, if I'm not mistaken. And what they did in the downtown Toronto on Lakeshore is they had a rubber duck, one of those cute little yellow rubber duckies, a five-story tall rubber ducky that the government has rented for, I think, $150,000 to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday. Now, yeah, it was a milestone in Canadian history, but do you have to spend $100,000 on a rubber duck? You know, when children go to school without breakfast many times, when you have homeless people, where you have people dying of fentanyl overdoses of drugs, right? And you can spend that kind of, you can waste that kind of money. Our money, it's not anybody else's money, it's our taxpayers' money. And you have needy people who don't have food, who don't have shelter, who don't have many of the, of the things that you and I all enjoy. So Mawla Ali salam, he put in place a concept of a living wage that nobody should go without the bare minimum standards of living as a human being. Coming now to number two, what else did Imam Ali put forth in his humanitarian existence, his multidimensional life as being a humanitarian? He showed us that human rights were for everybody, that respect of the human being was for everyone. You know, Allah has a verse in the Quran where Allah says, لَقَدْ قَرَمْنَا بَنِي Adam." We have ennobled the children of Adam. We have given the offspring of Adam respect, nobility, greatness. And Imam Ali shows us in, in a very poignant example that he was concerned about everybody that lived within his domain. Whether you were Muslim or not, he didn't care. And the hadith and the story mentions this, that one day Imam Ali was in Kufa. And him and his political advisors, the people within the government, they're walking through the streets of the city. Hey, this was a common thing for the Imam. He wouldn't hide away in a big white house. He didn't hide away on Sussex Drive and not deal with the people. He was walking in the streets and talking and looking at what the people needed. So the hadith mentions that one day him and his governors are out for a walk in the city. They come across an old man. He's blind. He's got his hand out, he's begging for food, for money, for whatever you can give him. They stop at this old man, and Amir al-Mu'mineen says a question. He asks a question of two words. He says, ma hadha. Now, if you know Arabic, you know what that means. Ma hadha literally means, what is this? Meaning, what is this I see in front of me? He didn't say, who is this? He says, what is this? His companions, his people around him, his entourage, they say, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, Nasrani, O commander of the faithful, this is a Christian. Meaning that why are you worried about him? You're a Muslim, you're, you're the leader. This is a Christian man who cares about him. Let's keep walking down the road. He's blind, he's begging, it doesn't matter. He's not one of, he's not one of us, right? He's not a Shia. He doesn't do matam, he doesn't do all of these things. Who cares about him? He's a Christian. 
Imam Ali has a very powerful statement here, again showing the humanitarian aspect of the life of the commander of the faithful. He says, you used this man when he was young. You used his energies, you used him because of his strength, the power he had. And now that he's old, he's decrepit, he's weak, he's blind. You just prevent him, you, you leave him, you, know, you throw him to the side of the curb, you don't care about him. He says, give him from the Baytul Mal, give him from the public treasury. Right? So he put forth a system of welfare. Right? Today we have welfare in Canada and unemployment insurance and all of these things. And you know, if you're on EI for too long, they cut you off. They say, no, no, you've been on EI too long. You've been, you only get 40 weeks, let's say, and you only get 60% of what your wages were. Go and get a job. Not realizing that sometimes people can't get employment in their profession. Right? Our economy is so tied, let's say, to America or to many other countries or to some resources like oil and gas that if you lose your job, you're out of a job for maybe years on end. And I know people who were in Alberta who lost their job in the oil field. And a year and a half and the man is unemployed. He's got a wife, he's got children, he's got a mortgage to pay, can't find a job. Would you want him working at Tim Hortons? Making $10 an hour won't even cover half of his ex expenses. Imam Ali shows us that this man, he was a Christian. It doesn't matter though. He could have been an atheist for all that, for all, you know, that all concerned. But the point was, Imam Ali says that this was a man that you used him when he was young, when he had energy, when he had vitality. And now you just throw him aside. No, you need to make sure that you have a welfare system in place that he's taken care of until the, he leaves this world. A few points to mention from this example. And there's probably many that we can draw from this story. One thing that Imam Ali is, that we learn is that Imam is shocked that there is a beggar in the Muslim society. How many of us, many of you, I'm sure have come from Muslim countries, whether it's Iran, maybe it's Pakistan, it's India, it's maybe East Africa, maybe Iraq, maybe the Middle East. How many times do you walk down the street when you go home and you see beggars on the street asking for food? I know when I lived in Iran, it was, if not a daily occurrence, it was there. You go to Iraq for Ziyara, you see it. You go to Mecca, you go to Medina, you see beggars on the streets. And I'm sure it happens in Pakistan, and I'm sure it's in India, I'm sure it's in all countries, but especially Muslim countries I want to focus on. Why or how is it possible that we have khums, 20% of our net savings at the end of a year, and yet we have people begging, Shias, Right? On the streets of Muslim countries begging for food. How is that possible? Our Sunni brethren have zakat, 2.5%. How is it that they have beggars on the streets in Sunni countries if we say, and I'm not, I don't want to differentiate because we're Muslims at the end of the day, whether you're a Shia or a Sunni, it makes no difference. You're a human being, you'll be treated with respect. We have ideological differences, we leave that aside. You're a human being, you love Rasulullah, you love the Quran, you pray, you follow the same you know, principle beliefs as all Muslims. How is it possible in Muslim countries you have beggars? It should, you know, and I've seen Muslims in Muslim countries going through the garbage bin that you throw away your half-eaten you know, kebab or falafel or burger. And I've seen Muslims take from the garbage can and eat it. That should not happen in a Muslim country. You know, forget about the non-Muslim countries, like, as I mentioned, but us as a, as, as a community, we have to look at that. How is it that back home, 
And I will say even in Canada, because I know people might say, oh, rich people, there's no poor people in Canada. We all have, you know, social security and we have a good welfare net. And I've met, I've seen Muslims, I've seen Shias, I've seen people who are religious scholars, I will even say, go to a non-Muslim food bank to get support because our community did not provide for them. I've seen it myself. And luckily that scholar didn't see me, you know, dropping off food at a food bank on behalf of somebody else because our cars passed and he didn't notice, but I saw him and he knows who he is. The point being is that in our community locally, we have people who are needy, who are going to food banks, who are in desperate situations. But as Allah says in, in Surah Al-Baqarah, some people are too humble to ask. Right? They don't want to come out and ask the community for help. And so they'll go to non-Muslim charities and they'll ask them. Because they know if I go to the non-Muslims, they won't spread my name in the community. Unfortunately with us, and I've seen this again before, I, I, I hate to say it, but I've seen it in our Shia communities that somebody is on, uh, 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 goes to the community head that they need some financial support to go to the welfare department of the Jamaat. And a week later, their name is spread around the community that this person came and asked for money. How do we treat our own Shias of Ali like that, that we expose them in front of the entire society? Imam Ali alayhi salam, again, he said that, you know what, no, this man, we should not have a beggar in the Muslim society. And so this is something that we have to reflect upon in our lives of what can we do to alleviate poverty first and foremost in our community locally. And then we go and look for wherever there are other needy people. Another point to mention in this, out of the four that I want to just cover, is Imam Ali was not concerned about the religion of this man. He didn't care he was a Christian, it didn't make a difference. Because he is an Imam deputed by Allah. As I said last night, he is the walking Qur'an. Ali is with the Qur'an, the Qur'an is with Ali. right? And the Qur'an doesn't discriminate. Allah doesn't say in the Qur'an, give sadaqah only to the Muslims. No, we know that sadaqah, the, the sadaqah that you and I give every day in those little boxes at home, that that in the Qur'an, there is a space in the, in the sadaqah for non-Muslims, as Allah calls them Mu'allafatul Qulub, those who would be inclined or would be loving of Muslims if we were to help them in times of need. So even our sadaqah, it has a place for non-Muslims. Number three is that Imam Ali wanted to make it clear again that religion, or rather helping out, has no religion. You help anybody. You know, today I was very impressed to hear that there are people in London community who actually volunteer at a soup kitchen downtown. And they're there today cooking food for homeless people. And then another group of people from your community here in London, from this center, go and serve homeless people food in the month of Ramadan. They're not Muslims, or maybe they are Muslims that they're serving, I don't know. And do, you, do they even know what Islam is, right? If you're homeless, are you worried about learning about religion? No, you're worried about filling your tummy. You're worried about how you're gonna, where you're gonna sleep tomorrow when it's minus 40 outside. And so when I heard that people in this community are volunteering, cooking in a soup kitchen, serving in a soup kitchen, it made me realize that there is hope, that there are people that care about humanity. And probably more than anybody else, those are the true Shias of Ali that they're going to help the homeless. That's what Imam Ali did. They're going to feed people who are not Muslims. This is what Imam Ali did. 
And that is a lesson that we can learn from people around us that they give back to society. They don't look at what religion, what culture, what group is doing the feeding. They go and they say, look, they're doing a good thing. I want to join that bandwagon. I want to be a person that helps out humanity. And the fourth point, and I'll move on with this, is that Imam Ali gave a very rapid response to this beggar, to this blind Christian. He didn't say, let me go back and I'll have an executive committee meeting with my executive counselors and we'll talk about it and we'll look at our finances and how much we can give. Right? Many times our institutions, we get engulfed in this. Oh, there's a good cause, but we have to go and have a meeting and we should uh, maybe get that person's financial statements. Let's see how much money they're really making. Do we really need to help them? Imam Ali wasn't concerned about that. He saw a needy person, he immediately acted, right? He didn't wait for the whole process to run its course as again, we do within our community settings sometimes. He was quick to find a, an issue and respond to it accordingly. The third part I want to look at as Imam Ali Islam, as the humanitarian of his era and the perfect example of a humanitarian is in regards to the rights of prisoners. Now, I don't know if you have a prison here in London, but I've visited at least two prisons in Canada. And let me tell you, it's not an easy place to be in. Me as a visitor, I was only there for an hour to meet a young Shia brother who was charged with attempted murder. It's a very sad case, but I went to meet him, give him some, give him some solace and some uh, comfort. Being charged with attempted murder is not an easy thing. But I tell you, me being in that prison for one hour, going through all of the security checks, the pat-downs, the x-rays, leaving everything at the door, including my car keys, not going even with a, with a nickel in my pocket. And then when I meet him, I'm behind a six-inch thick glass wall. I, I don't even physically touch the man. And yet there's such security. It made me realize the fact that, you know, it's a difficult place to be, whether you're innocently convicted or you had actually done a crime, it, you know, regardless of the situation, to be in prison is not an easy thing. But you know, in Islam, and our ulama have written books about this, that there are books written about the rights of prisoners. What is the right as a detainee, as a prisoner? Whether you're innocent, you're innocent or proven guilty, or if you're actually guilty of a crime, do you have rights as a human being? And Imam Ali has a very interesting hadith. He says in this hadith, and I'll read the translation. He says that feeding a prisoner, and he doesn't, he doesn't you know, um, talk about Muslim or not Muslim, just a prisoner. He says feeding a prisoner and being, showing ihsan to them, showing goodness to them is an obligation. He says, haqqun wajib. This is an obligation you have even if he's about to be executed tomorrow. Right? Even if his execution, we don't have executions in Canada, we don't have the death penalty, but America has it, many other countries in the Middle East have it. He says to feed the prisoner and deal with ihsan, goodness, respect, uh, mercy with him, even if you're gonna execute him tomorrow, this is a haqqun wajib, an obligation that you have to do. You know. You might say, well, prisoners are treated pretty well in Canada. You get a university degree, you get cable television, you get nice meals, you get you know, all the accommodation. 
But you can read the studies, and there's many research reports done by many think tanks that are online about the plight of prisoners, even in Canada. You know, contraband coming in, physical abuse that they face, the fact that prison guards turn a blind eye, sometimes for money, and the list goes on and on and on. And obviously you and I know what happened after the invasion of Iraq, the illegal invasion in Abu Ghraib. You and I saw a few of the photos that, then there's probably thousands that were never released. But you and I saw how the Iraqis, and many were innocent, they're at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were just wound, you know, they're just all swooped up in, a big, in one big raid. Where was human rights then when Abu Ghraib was happening, right? Where is human rights today when Guantanamo Bay still has people? Where President Obama had pledged to close Guantanamo Bay within the eight years of his term, the two terms that he had. And it's still open. So here the West will tell us Muslims, human rights, human rights. You shouldn't have the death penalty, treat people with respect. Well, what did you do in Abu Ghraib for four, five, six, seven, eight years? Right. The videos are still online, the pictures are still there if you haven't seen them yet. Right. Guantanamo Bay is only a couple of hours away from here. You can see what's happened and, and, and what prisoners go through there in Guantanamo Bay. Again, Imam Ali being the multidimensional man showed us that even if you have a prisoner, they're guilty of a crime. They killed somebody, let's say. But they have rights. Treat them with ihsan. And stripping a prisoner naked and threatening them with abuse, that is not ihsan, right? Tying them up to a chair and force feeding them with a tube up their nose, that's not ihsan, that's dhulm. And Amir al-Mu'mineen showed us that he would never be like that. He would never be like these Western governments we see today, trumpeting democracy and human rights and all these other beautiful terms that we get caught up in. No, he was the epitome of justice, as I said at the beginning. Time is running short, so I'll end with this last point for tonight. And that is about animal rights. I talked about human rights in different levels. We had a, a basic, uh, a, a, you know, a living wage, Imam Ali, guarantee that people should have. I talked about the fact that there should be no beggars in a Muslim society, even non-Muslims. I just spoke about the rights of prisoners. And again, all of these could be further extrapolated and built upon. But number four, as Imam Ali, as the greatest humanitarian to ever live, is animal rights. We don't ever maybe think about animal rights, right? We, you know, we don't like to keep pets at home many times. Uh, we see a dog, we want to kick it sometimes. We don't like, we always nudges the dog and a stuck for and if he touches me, you know, it's not a big deal if he touches you, really. Okay, you get nudges, you go and clean yourself up. Right? But to disrespect a dog or to violently attack it or be harsh to it, it's not Islam. You know, there's a beautiful story that Ayatollah Jawadi Amali quotes in his book, Mafatiul Hayat, a recent book he's written, about the time one day when Rasulullah was making wudu. And he's making wudu and a little kitten comes. And he can tell that the kitten's thirsty. The hadith that Ayatollah Jawadi, he's a marja taqlid in Qom, he quotes the hadith that he says that Rasulullah stopped his wudu. It was time for prayers or whatever it was. He stopped his wudu. He let the kitten drink from the water. When the kitten was satiated, the kitten was done, the Prophet re-initiated his wudu from the beginning. Now how many of us would ever think of doing that? Right? In fact, we know there's a fiqh ruling that our maraja mentioned that if you have to do wudu, 
and there's only enough water for A to do wudu or B to give it to a starving animal, you forego your wudu, you do tayammum, and you let the animal drink. So Islam was concerned about animal rights right from the beginning. There's hadith that tell us that if you kill an animal, uh, the hadith mentions a, a sparrow, a small bird, if you intentionally kill a sparrow, on the day of judgment, that little bird will come and complain to Allah against you on the day of judgment. We're told even in Islam that to do sport hunting or sport fishing is haram. In this Western culture, what will they do? They'll go and, and, and shoot a bear, not for the meat, but as a trophy to hang the head on the wall, to kill a deer and hang the antlers above their door. Not because you needed the food, because it's a fun thing to do, right? You line up the, the, dog, the, the animal in your, in your gun and you shoot the animal as if you're a man because you can shoot, you can pull a trigger, right? That's not a man. Right. Go back and hunt how the prophets, and when they hunted, by hand, and with skill, and with planning. Right. And so we're told if you go sport hunting or sport fishing, and you don't eat that food, it's haram. Not allowed to do that. Islam was concerned about animal rights. I'll end with this in letter, letter number 25 of Najul Balagha. Again, a book that all of us should have at home or on our phones. And even once a month, read one of the... Khutbahs, one of the letters, one of the sayings of Imam Ali, just one a month even. You know, within a couple of years, you'll finish the entire book. But your mind will open up to an ocean of knowledge. In letter 25, Imam Ali is speaking to one of his governors that he would send to collect the zakat. Right? So obviously, not like today, we go and make a purchase. 13% automatically goes to Mr. Trudeau in Ottawa. Back then, the Khalifa would have to send a, a tax collector. He would come to the village, he would meet the people, he would say, do you have any zakat to give to the Khalifa? They would say no, he would go on his way. They would say yes, he would say, okay, let's, you know, can we get it, we can count it, we can do all the, the hisab, the accounting, and I'll go on my way. So Imam Ali sends one of his deputies to one of the towns, one of the villages to collect the zakat. And he, there's a lot of information he gives at the beginning of the letter of how to treat the people in the village. I'll skip that, but just get to how, he, how you should treat the animals. He says, when it comes to taking the zakat of the camels or the sheep or the goats in a certain amount, if you have X amount of camels, there's a certain percentage you give for zakat. Imam Ali says, don't enter into the area where the animals are in that animal pen in a threatening way. Don't scare the animals, because they probably know that this is a stranger. I haven't seen this man before. He's not the one that takes care of me, right? We think animals are stupid. They're not dumb, you know? And if you've got pets in a home, you know how smart animals are. They get used to you. They know that you're their owner. They know that you are the one that provides the food for them. So Imam says, don't enter into that area where the animals are in a threatening way. Don't scare the animals. Don't tease them, right? You're there for a responsibility, you're a godly man, you're acting on behalf of the Khalifa, respect the animals that you're going to take for your zakat. He said, and I'll end with this last point, do not separate the mother camel from her babies if they're nursing. Right? Don't let the mothers be, you know, don't let the children, the, the, the baby camels or goats, whatever they be, don't let them lose the love of their mother. If you see a mother camel or a goat or whatever and they're nursing their children, don't separate them. Find other animals to pick from. Right? Look at the level of deepness of this man that we call our Imam. 
He was concerned that an animal should not lose its mother while it's nursing. Right? Who else would ever come at that level of, of humanitarianism, of being, a, of being a lover of humanity, of being a lover of God's creations, to tell his tax collector, check to make sure the animal isn't nursing off its mother before you take that other animal away. And then he says, I'll end with this, he says that when you're taking the animals, and you're coming back to Kufa or Medina or wherever your destination is, he says, make sure that you stop every now and then. When you come across a watering hole, let the animal drink. If there's some grass, let it eat, let it graze. If there's a place where you can rest, allow it to rest. Don't burden the animal with too much. Don't burden the animal with too much. Give it what it needs to survive. And then obviously there is much more in that letter. I'll conclude with this. Just to show to us that Imam Ali alayhi salam, this man that we commemorated over these last four nights, that he wasn't just an imam in, in the sense of a leader, right? In that traditional definition, the translation, imam is a leader. This is an imam and that's an imam. No, he was a true human, human being. He was, as I said at the very first night, he was a multidimensional man. He didn't just excel in one area of life. He was great in everything that he did. And he has to be because he's an imam for ins and for jinn, for humanity and for the jinn. He's an imam for the angels, I would even say. He's a teacher of Jibra'il alayhi salam. Right? And when you're at that level of being of that kind of a man, then you are perfect everywhere. Right? And so those who even sometimes say to us, you Shias exaggerate Imam Ali. No, actually, I would say, unfortunately, we as a Shia community, we have underestimated Imam Ali Whatever fadilat any alim, any zakir, any speaker can say about Imam Ali, it's not enough. Right? Whatever books are written about the fadilat of Imam Ali, it's not enough. You know, whether we were to sit here and speak about Mawla Ali for the whole year, it would not be enough. Right? Because he is the walking Quran. Allah tells us in the Quran that if you were to count the blessings of Allah, if all the oceans were ink, all the trees were pens, and everybody were to join together, that you could not count the blessings of Allah. Amir al-Mu'mineen is the greatest of the blessings that we have. As we read in the Quran, One of those na'mats, one of those na'ims is Amir al-Mu'mineen.